Um, we spent about eight weeks this fall walking through the Minor Prophets, this kind of ragtag group of guys that God calls up to speak his word to his people, his people, the Israelites, who are in a time of transition, facing exile. And uh, throughout the prophets, one of the things that you noticed if you were reading along with us is that the prophets are sort of like looking at a mountain range. And you kind of get the idea that the prophets are just describing the mountains from left to right. And they're naming, that's Bachelor, and these are the sisters, and so forth, right? But what you don't pick up oftentimes in the prophets is depth perception. Because the mountains don't just go in a nice line uh, in terms of how far away or how close they are to us as the viewer. So it's really helpful as you read through the prophets to understand that they don't actually work as linearly as we think they do, but they are oftentimes moving from left to right and back and forth at the same time. And so what I mean by that is sometimes they're describing an event that is directly before them. And they're talking to God's people about something that's happening right now or will happen very soon. But then in other times, they, they move directly to the next mountain and it's something that has to do with something that's going to happen way in the future. And so we, we have to read the prophets with depth perception. And many times, they're describing these distant, distant mountains or these events that are going to take place way in the future. And every single one of the prophets deals with the here and now, but also is dealing in the future tense, way beyond their future and even way beyond our future. Looking forward, first of all, the prophets are looking forward to the coming of Messiah, to God's sent one, the anointed one of Israel, who would come and who would establish God's kingdom on earth. And then sometimes they, they point out this far, far away mountain, which is the reconciliation or the restoration of all things, the day when heaven would come to earth in all its fullness and the world would be made new again. Now, it's really confusing if you don't have that depth perception reading through the prophets because you're like, wow, it seems like all this stuff is happening at the same time, but there's, there's layers and levels. And so we spent most of our time looking at what the prophets were seeing directly before them and maybe just hinting at some of those distant mountains. But that first, that first uh, range of mountains once removed from them was their anticipation of Messiah. Their hope that God was going to show up in their world as king, as a liberating king who would free them from oppression, bring them home from exile, and once again restore his people in his place. And that is the hope that leads us into the season of Advent. And so this morning, as Christmas is getting closer and closer, we're going to try to step out a little bit in front of the mad holiday rush. And while we still have a little bit of room to breathe, talk about what it looks like for us to identify with Israel as people who are longing 
for God's arrival in the world. So if you don't know, the word Advent simply means arrival. And it's a season that Christians have been observing for centuries now. It's not a Catholic thing, it's a Christian thing. It's the four weeks leading up to Christmas where followers of Jesus from all different denominations and and traditions of the Christian faith set aside a month or so to prepare our hearts in anticipation for celebrating God's arrival in the world through Christ. And so this year, for the first time ever, we as a church are going to be entering into the season of Advent. And we're going to set aside the four Sundays, the four weeks leading up to Christmas to prepare our hearts and to create space and to pay attention and ultimately to create room for Jesus to break into our world. And so let me read to you a quote from James K.A. Smith that hopefully will tie in where we've been and where we're going. He says, During Advent each year, we learn once again to be Israel, recognizing our sin and need, thus waiting, longing, hoping, calling, praying for the coming of Messiah, the advent of justice and the inbreaking of shalom. We go through the ritual of desiring the kingdom, a kind of holy impatience by reenacting Israel's longing for the coming of the king. The repetition of this year after year is a training in expectation. Thus, Advent shakes us out of the presentist complacency that we can be lulled into, and instead we are called and formed to be a people of expectancy, looking for the coming again of Messiah. We are a future people who will not seek to escape the present, but will always sit somewhat easy in the present, haunted by the brokenness of the now. Okay, so I hope you get the idea. We've spent eight weeks looking into Israel as they were longing for God's promised king to come. And as we move now into the season of Advent, we are learning to be Israel to be people who are waiting expectantly, learning how to want God to show up and to break into our world. And for many of us, this is the last thing that we want to do. We hate waiting. We are a culture that's increasingly more and more catering to our desire for instant gratification, right? We want what we want when we want it. And we freak out if we have to wait, right? Like getting in line at Costco and you're like frantically doing the math, trying to figure out, sizing up which cart in front of you is going to be the short way to go. Because God forbid you'd have to wait an extra minute in line, right? If you're online and it's taking more than five seconds for that web page to load, you're like, ah, you're freaking out, right? We hate waiting. And the season of Advent would call us to be a people who learn to wait upon God, who learn to desire the kingdom, and who patiently, expectantly would seek Jesus during this season, but so that we can become the kind of people who live this way all the time. 
And so the tragedy in the story of Israel is that they are eagerly anticipating God's arrival in the world. They're looking forward to the promised one, the Messiah to come. And the tragedy is that when he does show up, most people don't notice. They haven't been paying attention. Because when Jesus shows up, it doesn't look like the way they thought it was going to look. God breaks into their world, and they don't recognize him. Have you ever had an experience like that where there was something you were kind of looking forward to, and then for whatever reason you weren't paying attention and you ended up missing out? I'm the kind of guy that for whatever reason, I miss a lot of things. I've missed flights before. I missed one flight because I got on the wrong plane. I was actually at the wrong airport. Um, (laughs) Turns out there's more than one airport in some cities, so I was actually sitting on the plane ready for takeoff, and stewardess comes down like, you're not not on the right plane. Um, Apparently that can happen, and so I end up missing my flight. (laughs) Um, Let me show you a picture from uh, Kelly family lore when I was a kid. That's uh, me in the middle with the hat. I'm 16. Um, my brother with an afro, <laughs> with Scotty, and then my other brother, Phil, my sister, Karen, and my mom. My dad took this picture. When I was 16, our parents took us on a six-week road trip around the country. We were in one of those uh, super sweet conversion vans. You know what I mean? And uh, we started uh, here and went across the top and down the East Coast and back through the South and then up the West Coast. Six weeks. And um, along the way, we visited a bunch of kind of important landmarks and historical sites around the country. And so one of the stops was Washington, D.C. And um, this picture was taken in D.C. My dad took it of the rest of us. And uh, immediately after this picture, my younger brother, Phil, the one with the hat on the left, he's 12 at the time, and he goes, "Um, hey, when are we going to go see the White House? Okay? Cassie, zoom out real quick. (laughs) We were already well out of D.C. by the time he realized we already were at the White House. (laughs) And you'll notice he's kind of got this smirk. He's not really paying attention to the camera or to anything else. There was some sort of protest or something going on the side, and 12-year-old boys are easily distracted. And uh, he ended up (laughs) being at this kind of historic and important place, like a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing for many of us, and he totally misses it. So this is kind of Kelly family, like, we we love to bring this up and jab (laughs) Phil about it, right? Like, maybe one day you'll get to see the White House, man. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) It has to do with paying attention. And Advent is about paying attention so that we don't miss Jesus. It's about... Being people who are diligently longing and looking for God's arrival in our world. And when I say that, I mean both the first coming of Christ and the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, and then I also mean the second advent, the day we still look forward to, that distant mountain that we hope for, the day when Christ will return a second time and establish his kingdom on earth, a kingdom of justice 
and he will rule here forever. And we live at a time between the times, or we live in the space between the advents or the arrivals of Christ, between the first and second coming of Jesus. And so we look back and we share with Israel and their longing for the first coming, but we also, as the church, long for the second coming of Christ as well. So when we talk about God showing up in the world, I mean those two advents, but I also mean all the little ways that God breaks into our world and shows up in the meantime. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you had those moments? Maybe they're few and far between for you, but you can look back, at least in retrospect, and go, man, God showed up that day. God came through. God provided for us. God was our comfort and our hope and our rock when we had nowhere else to turn. We have a God who is constantly breaking the rules and breaking into our world. And it would be a tragedy if God were to show up in our world and we would miss it because we weren't paying attention. So Advent's about paying attention so we don't miss Jesus. And like I said, many of the Jews who had been part of this tradition of waiting, when God did show up at the first Christmas, they didn't recognize him. But there were a few who did. And it changed their lives forever. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at part of the first Christmas story. Matthew, chapter 2, first book in the New Testament. Last year, or last week, as Jer was here and closed out our study in the Minor Prophets, we ended with Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and this kind of 400 years of silence that would follow. And so now we get to pick up where we left off. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east, came to Jerusalem, and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures 
and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We will in the coming weeks pay attention to Herod and the counter kingdom that Christ is born into. But for this morning, I simply want to call our attention to these magi. To these people who were paying attention. Who were longing for the promised Messiah of Israel to show up. And they see him. They follow the star and they come to this child and in verse 10, when they come to the star, they are overjoyed. And they get to the baby, they bow down, and they worship him. They open their gifts, they open the, their treasures, these things that have incredible uh, material value. And they pour it all out at the, at the manger of this baby king. That's what happens in the first, in the real Christmas story. That those who are paying attention actually get to see Jesus. And when they do, they are overjoyed and their response is to worship him. And to use whatever they have, their material wealth and their stuff and all the things that they would, the world would hold in really high esteem and say that's the good stuff, that's what life is about. They look at all their wealth and all their stuff and compared to Christ, it's nothing. And so they use whatever they have as a way of worshiping, adoring, treasuring the baby. That's what the first Christmas was. God showing up in the world and those who had been waiting for him and paying attention, getting to encounter Jesus. And as they do, their hearts are overjoyed and worship pours out of them. Do you remember when Christmas was like this really simple, sacred, worshipful time? I don't. (laughs) That's never happened. Did you have a little bit of anxiety over the last month when you showed up at Costco or Home Depot for the first time and realized, oh my gosh, it's here? (laughs) Oh, here we go again. There's a sense of anxiety or terror. Gosh, this is okay. (laughs) We're going to have to get through this. And if you're a Christian and part of the church, then no doubt you don't go through Christmas without ever thinking about Jesus or paying attention to the Jesus story. But we have phrases like, let's keep Christ in Christmas and remember the reason for the season. And as we get close to it, we just kind of try to pause for a moment and go, let's, let's reflect on the fact, you know, on the story of why we're really here, right? And what I want to say is that I think if we get to that point where we're so deep into the season that we're trying to squeeze Jesus in after the fact, then we've already missed out. 
And so Advent is a season to prepare us so that we, like the Magi, like the shepherds, like all, those, all the others who come before the baby, would actually get to see him, be overjoyed, and we would worship him. So here's what we see in the first Christmas story, is that Jesus satisfies the hearts of those who wait for him. Turn with me to Matthew 13, a few chapters to the right. The baby has grown up, and he's now a rabbi who tells stories. And in Matthew 13, verse 44, there's a one-sentence parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. End of story. And so, to re-narrate the story in modern times, a guy is out hiking in the woods, and he finds $100 million buried on government property. And so, he finds out that for $100,000, he can buy that plot of land, and everything on it will belong to him. So he is set on getting that treasure. And he goes and does whatever it takes. He happily sells everything he has. So he's going through his whole house, and he's throwing stuff on Craigslist, throwing stuff on eBay, and he's parting with some of his most valued possessions, but not out of duty or obligation, but how? In his joy. He is so stoked to get the treasure that he's found that all the things that were most valuable to him before are no longer the object of his worship, but simply a way that he can take hold of the thing that he really wants. And in fact, he almost gets a strange sense of joy every time he sells one of his most prized possessions because it moves him one step closer to receiving this treasure that he's found. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what life with God is like. When you see him, you're going to want him so bad that everything else will pale in comparison. And you'll all of a sudden see all of your money and all of your stuff and everything else you have not as competition to Christ and his kingdom, but as a way to serve, as a way to pursue. And you joyfully lay down all your earthly treasures to receive him. This is a description of worship. Now, I've used the worship many times already this morning, and we're not talking about singing songs, are we? Like, I don't think that's what happened when the wise men show, showed up. It's not like this barbershop trio, you know, singing songs. Singing, music, is one of the ways we express our worship. But what we're talking about is something that's not just an orientation of the heart, but a way of life. That all of life is living 
into the presence of Christ and his kingdom. Now the truth is that for most of us, that parable, that sounds, if we're honest, pretty unfamiliar. Right? Or maybe at one time it sounded familiar, like when you first came to faith, you were so excited about your relationship with Jesus, and your whole world began to revolve around him. But over time, you kind of got wiser, right? got more mature. And um, for many of us, if ever, it's been a long time since we had this magi kind of experience with God. And the reason is because we're more interested in asking, how much control can I keep over my life and still call myself a Christian? What's the bare minimum I can commit to and still be a Jesus follower? How much of my money and my stuff and my time and my identity can I use on myself and not feel bad about not being generous or faithful with it? So the problem is that the baby in the manger has competition. There are all sorts of other messiahs, other gods, that would compete for our attention, our affection, and our worship. And we don't worship Jesus fully at Christmas or any other time of the year because that kind of worship is spent elsewhere. And so my hope and my prayer is that this Christmas season that we as a church will embark on this journey together of paying attention, learning to wait, getting to see Jesus, having our hearts satisfied in him. And in the meantime, seeing all of our money and stuff and all the things that money can buy or give us, see that fade away in comparison to the joy of knowing and treasuring Christ. So what might it look like if we as a church entered into the season of Advent dead set on not missing Jesus? What if we reimagined Christmas so that it looks a little bit more like the way Christ showed up in our world the first time? What if we rejected our consumer identity and instead embraced our identity as the sent people of God? And what if Christmas was actually a time marked by seeing Jesus, embracing his good news, and treasuring him above all else. So this year as a church, we are going to enter in to this season through engaging in this thing called Advent Conspiracy. I want to show you a quick video that will uh, lay out the vision of it.
Sound good? <laughs> this is an initiative that was started by our good friends at Imago Day in Portland a number of years ago. And uh, thousands of churches across the world have gotten on board. Uh, Jen and I and our church in Corvallis participated in this in the eight years that we were there. And I will tell you, nothing um, in terms of a way of entering in and celebrating Christmas has been so powerful and so meaningful for us and our family and our community than this. So the idea isn't like here's some sort of program or curriculum or four-point formula to have a really Jesus-y Christmas. That's not the idea. The point is this vision, this idea that what would it look like for us to enter into this season in a way that is not dominated by all the other narratives and identities that are forced upon us by the culture we live in, but primarily reclaiming this story, redeeming Christmas, so that it's actually something that we don't feel anxious about, but it's something that we look forward to because we anticipate experiencing the arrival of Christ in our world, and we get to participate in that, in acts of love and justice and generosity and family and friendship in a way that the world would look at us and see something that looks radically different from the rest of the culture, in a way that gives a compelling and authentic and beautiful picture of the real Jesus showing up in the real world. And so as we walk through for the next month or so, we're going to take a Sunday to look at each of the four pillars of this kind of reimagining or redeeming of Christmas. But I'll walk through them real quick just to get it on your radar before Black Friday. Sound good? So there's four pillars to this, and if you've got one of these booklets, please take a moment, whether it's this morning or this week, to to look through this. Emily, our director of missional engagement, and several others in our office worked really hard on this this, these last few weeks, and it's killer. Super helpful resource to help you understand what we're talking about. And so I want to invite you to turn, I don't know which page it is, the four pillars of Advent conspiracy. And there's kind of these four parts that we will stand on and move forward. And again, this isn't just some sort of plug-and-play program. The idea is that it's a vision that we get to creatively engage and that we as a church and you as your, and your family get to figure out how is Christ calling us to seek him this Christmas and truly from the get-go make this thing more about him and less about everything else. And so uh, I'm going to kind of work backwards through these, but the first uh, pillar that we'll talk about is, is spend less. So the first thing I want to say is that as we enter in to the season of Advent together, I am giving you permission to spend less. For some of us, for many of us actually, the anxiety that begins to well up when we come into the season is, I can't afford another Christmas. But I have to. And here's what we do. We spend money that we don't have buying people things that they don't need. And we feel like we have to. We feel like we have to. That's worship language, right? And so you are free to spend less. You don't have to go into debt 
You don't have to spend money you don't have. You don't have to spend a whole bunch of money out of duty or obligation or out of a weird traditional sense of this is just kind of what we do. Okay, so in two weeks, we'll talk about resisting the empire and how the kingdom of Christ looks vastly different from the kingdom of Herod. So for, for now, you get to decide what that looks like. Maybe you're just going to buy one less gift. Or maybe you're going to spend a little bit less on all the gifts overall. But you're going to spend less. But you're also going to, number two, give more. Spending less doesn't mean giving worse gifts. And definitely doesn't mean giving no gifts. We're actually going to encourage one another to give better gifts. And just like in the video, we see that God loves us not by giving us stuff. John 3.16 doesn't say, For God so loved the world that he gave us an iPad or an Xbox or a sweet Lego set. God loves us so much that he gives us his son. He breaks into our world and he gives himself to us. That is a good gift. I'm not just going to click on Amazon and give you something that requires nothing of me other than my credit card. But we're actually going to open up our lives and give gifts relationally. And we will do our best to resource you with ideas and inspiration of what that could look like. Some of you guys are super DIY, Pinteresting kind of people, right? And so that doesn't freak you out. Others of you, like, you, you better not try, right? But for our family, for the last, I mean, our, the entire life of our kids, the central way that we give gifts to one another are relational gifts. Now, some of you are coming from families where all this weird, this sounds like weird hippie stuff, right? Like, <laughs> you don't understand. My parents are not going to be stoked about like a little jar of popcorn or something like that, right? No, I get that, right? The point is that <clears throat> we are giving of ourselves in relationship. And these can be great gifts. For Jen's parents, as they've participated in the conspiracy with us, um, instead of buying us a whole bunch of stuff, what they've done is taken everybody on a trip together. And for Christmas, we actually get to go somewhere amazing in the world and create memories. If you're honest, like how many can even name one Christmas present you got last year? You, you could think about it a little bit, and maybe you'll remember. Right on. Most of us, it's like, hey, super cool, I've always wanted this, and a month later, we kind of forget about it, right? And when we talk about giving relationally, we're talking about giving of ourselves and creating space and time to do things together. And so we will be holding, essentially, a relational giving uh, fair in, in some ways. We'll be giving you resources and inspiration and ideas for how to do this. And then thirdly, this is going to be about loving all. So flip towards the back, actually the very back page of your booklet. So we're going to spend less, but we're going to give more. And the question is, the money that we didn't spend buying people things that they don't need, we are going to give that away. And together, we're going to come on Christmas Eve and offer up a love offering 
And our goal is to raise $20,000 on December 24th and to give 100% of it away to those desperately in need of the blessing of God, the tangible touch of Christ's kingdom. And so the hope is that we could give half of it locally and the other half globally. On that back page, the local expression will be towards a women and children's shelter here in Bend. Kind of the other half of what the Shepherd's House is doing. We love Shepherd's House and the ministry they're doing for men. And we want to care for the women and children in our community that are in need of that kind of care and counseling as well. So we want to give 10000 to them. And then the other half is one of our global par- partners in Thailand, the Sold Project. And this is an organization that's working towards the prevention of sex trafficking. Right? So not just pulling girls out of traffic, but actually preventing them from getting trafficked in the first place. And you can read more about both those ministries there, but our hope is to give 10000 to each. so that Christmas would truly be good news again. That the money that we do spend, so to speak, wouldn't just be on cheap plastic material or even symbolic gifts, because you have to give something. But we would actually reroute that money towards people in the world that really, really need it. Spend less, give more, love all, And all three of those are simply our way of doing the fourth one, which is to worship fully. To enter into this season in a way that authentically reflects seeing and embracing Christ. Can we just pause for a moment and go, of all the the people that we should be giving gifts to at Christmas, Who's the top of that list? Well, it happened in the manger. Christmas should be our way of giving, worshiping, treasuring, and celebrating Christ. This is his birthday party. I mean, it is a little weird if you think about it, that we celebrate his birthday by giving gifts to each other. Like, you'd be kind of bummed if people did that at your birthday, right? (laughs) This is supposed to be about you. Like, you don't see the wise men showing up at the manger and going, well, Jesus is here, Todd, so I got you this calendar with trucks on it. It's like, that's weird. (laughs) No, they give their gifts. They give their treasures. They spend their money, and they pour out their hearts in worship to Jesus. And so above all, that's what we're hoping, is that by spending less loving Spending less, giving more, loving all. We will be worshiping fully. We will be giving the greatest gift to Christ. And my hope is that throughout this process, we'll be transformed into a community of people who have encountered the real Jesus in such a powerful way that we joyfully, like the man who finds the buried treasure, give up all else so that we can have him. But we're also not primarily entering into this season asking what can we do for God, but we're reflecting on what has God done for us. 
And when we get the joy that comes with seeing the truth and the grace and the mercy and the justice of God's arrival in the world in Christ, it's going to be enough for us. Our hearts will be satisfied. And we will want to give up all else for him. It's because the truth is that he is giving up, he has given up all else so that he can have us. God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ dies for us. So the ultimate Christmas gift is not what we give to God, but it's that God has given himself to us. And our, my invitation to you this season, my question for you, if God is giving himself to you, will you receive him? Will you pay attention? Will you wait for him? And are you willing to give up all else in order to get him? This is our response and act of worship. So some of you are stoked, and this sounds like good news, and some of you are freaking out, because you already spent all your money and bought all your presents. (laughs) And some of you feel like this is stupid and cheesy and you don't want to be told what to do. And some of you are worried that if you show up the week after Christmas with a new jacket, we're all going to say, you didn't do it, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the point is not to go cheesy, religious, legalistic, and create like a new set of rules for how we do Christmas. The point is, is not to do Christmas worse, but to do it better. And to have enough faith in Christ the King to believe that this could actually be the most worshipful time of the year. Both in the way that we experience the presence and power of Christ personally and communally as a church, but also in the way we reflect the gracious and generous nature of our God by rejecting the empire giving better gifts, and loving those who need love the most. So over the next few weeks, we'll have a guest speaker next week come in and, and drop some bombs. You're, gonna, you're not going to want to miss her. But starting the week after Thanksgiving, we're going to be walking through these four pillars of Advent conspiracy a little bit more deeply and providing resources and experiences and opportunities for you to, you to engage. And my hope and prayer is not that we're all going to do this the exact same way, but that however Christ is calling you to seek him and wait for him and treasure him this season, that you will do that. And that you will hold him at higher value than you hold any of your other traditions or family members or cultural expectations. That Jesus is better. And he's worth reorienting not just Christmas, but your entire life around. Are you willing to go there with me? You willing to do that? I'm stoked. It's going to be good. I'll pray, and then uh, we'll take the offering. Have we taken the offering? We can take another offering. And, um, and then we'll respond. Father, we're so thankful that you have shown up in our world. And though many missed you the first time, 
we don't want to miss you. We don't, we don't want to be ignorant of your arrival in our daily lives. And so I pray that as we embark on this learning journey, that you would give us hearts that long for you, that you would give us the faith to follow you, trusting that you are what we need, you are what our hearts desire. And I would pray for my brothers and sisters here that your spirit would inspire creative, authentic, prophetic even, expressions of how to celebrate Christmas in a way that would both be meaningful to us and our families and worshipful to you and revolutionary in the world we live in. You have called us to yourself. And we thank you for that incredible invitation. God, you have given yourself to us. And I pray that this season we would receive you with open arms and open hearts. In Jesus' name.